The rich people know one thing that other people don't invest. Wow. Your entire life you are told to save. It's because your grandparents and probably your parents, if they built financial security, most of them saved. You could save your way to some degree of financial security. You can't do that anymore. Inflation is too high. And so you have to become an investor. Now, to be an investor does not mean go buy Dogecoin with 100% of your portfolio. It does not mean that I only buy the stock if I think it's going to go up 10x. Instead, what it means is you can follow timeless investing principles. You can go dollar cost average into the S&P 500 and do it for 30 years and you'll probably end up actually retiring as a millionaire. I'm Tom Ward and over the last couple of years, I've had the chance to sit down with some of the biggest celebrities and influencers in the world. What I've always found most fascinating is the stories of the businesses that they've built behind the scenes. On this show, you'll get an inside look of what it takes to build a successful business from some of the biggest celebrities, business people, and up-and-coming entrepreneurs in the world. This is The Tom Ward Show. Right, welcome to The Tom Ward Show, where every week I talk to with the most successful people in the world, and they teach us how to elevate our lives. It's time to level up. And make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, turn on notifications, and follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple. That really helps grow the audience, which gets us great guests like Anthony Pompliano, also known as Pomp. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, and a content creator. And I'm excited to have you today, brother. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. You know, what's wild is I was, you know, I listen to interviews and I do prep for these things. And I heard you say that um, you have no hobbies and work is your hobby. And I completely related to that. Like for me doing this, this is the easy part of the job. This is the fun part of being a content creator, actually like talking with people. Right. And I had a corporate job for like six years and I was doing this on the side and every single Saturday when everybody else is out golfing and fucking do, running five K's or whatever the fuck they're doing on a Saturday, I would hole up in my office right here and I'd write an article for Forbes or I'd reach out to guests or brands and like 10 hours would go by and I was having a blast. Like I thought all the other people with hobbies were nuts. Like, do you think that's the reason for all of your successes is that kind of attitude towards work that hey, it's fun. Like, why would I want to do anything else? I think that um, a theme throughout my life is competing. And this is the greatest sport ever. You got to play this sport longer than any other sport that you possibly could play. And so when uh, I got a um, uh, my first kind of real big boy job, if you will, I had a friend reach out to me and he said, hey, man, you made it. And I said, what, what do you mean? I was like, I'm scared shitless and I think I'm going to screw this entire thing up. And he said, no, he goes, uh, I manage money on behalf of professional basketball players. And let me explain to you, you know, you're going to go make a pretty good salary, but that's probably the lowest amount of money that you're going to make in your career uh, moving forward. But these basketball players, they make a ton of money, but they do it for two, three, four years. He's like the longevity in the business world is so much greater than it is in the sports world. And so when you take that, forget all the money and all kind of like the nonsense that I think people get really attracted to. And you just look at it and you say, if you go play a professional sport, the average NFL player, I think, plays for three seasons. But if you're in the business world, you get to play this game. Let's say you start at the age of 22 or 25 years old until the day you die, if you want. And so you literally get, you know, God willing, something 50, 60, 70 year run at this. And so it's just this amazing thing that we get to do. And so, yes, I have no hobbies, but in some way, my life is basically the game that I love the most. And I tend to think that people who, you know, kind of spend all of their time focused on that one thing, they usually are the ones who end up actually having some level of success at it. You know, did you always have this love of business? Like, I, what did your dad do? What did he do for a living? 
Yeah, I think every single person I knew growing up had some interest in business. So uh, my father uh, worked at uh, you know very large corporations, and then he started businesses. Uh, pretty much every single one of my friends, uh, whether it was literally like a local small business, they ran a shop, or uh, they had some sort of uh, real estate business, or, or whatever. It was just like it was always around us. Um, and then my brothers and I, uh, I, I think we always credit our parents. They did one thing that actually was pretty uh, um, helpful, and I don't even know if they did it intentionally but we never got allowance or we never got anything. It was always like, if you want money, $20 to go to the movie theater, like go do this thing, right? Whether it was like, go outside, rake the leaves or do this or, or whatever. And it was never like your like traditional chore. So it wasn't like make your bed, you get 20 bucks, right? It's like, no, that's like, you have to do that and you're not getting any money. Yeah, but yeah. what instilling in us was, I remember as a kid, some of my favorite memories are with my brothers. I've got four brothers and the five of us, it would snow in North Carolina. And we'd run around all the neighbors, we basically would convince them to let us shovel their uh, driveways. But part of the problem is that if you go to the first house and you shovel the driveway, then somebody may go get the second house and you don't get there in time because you're shoveling the first one. So we basically would figure out like, okay, well, why don't we run around, get them all to like give us the exclusive essentially, right? And then we'll split up and we'll do this or whatever. And like that can get us more money. And so I always think about uh, in our lives, we're practicing. And so at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, I was practicing for what I was going to end up doing at you know, 18, 20, 22 years old. At that point, I was practicing what I was going to do in my mid-20s and then early 30s, et cetera. And so I always think about like what I'm doing right now. There's a bunch of people will look at it and be like, oh, my God, I can't wait to do that. And all I keep saying to myself is like I'm practicing. I don't even yet know what I'm practicing for, but something I'm doing every single day is practice for that next thing. And so if you love business, that could be the same industry. That could be a different industry. That could be a different location. It could be a product, a service, whatever. If you ultimately are just practicing the game of business, eventually some of the really big fat, you know, fastballs down the plate come and you just got to swing at those points. And, and if you do it, then, uh, then you get a shot at doing something special. You know, for me, I was always a sneakerhead when I was a, when I was a kid and I wanted Jordans, you know, and my parents, the same thing, like they go, okay, your shoe budget's 30 bucks. Like, we'll get you a $30 pair of sneakers, but it's like, no, no, no I want $80 sneakers. Like, okay, Tom, go make 50 bucks, right? For my, for me, it was mowing lawns, right? I would just, you know, cute kid, you know, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, your lawn's looking a little, you know, high out there. Would you mind if I mowed it? And, you know, just at, taking my dad's lawnmower all over my neighborhood, just pushing it around, just knocking on doors. Now you have that. Is that the one thing that you can't teach? Like you've hired and worked with a ton of people and, you know, you people are dying to work with you every day and you interview people and I'm sure you're looking at applications and everything. Is that the one kind of intrinsic thing that doesn't show up on a chart or it doesn't show up on a resume and you just know if somebody has it or not? Is that what you look for? Is that is that big when you're hiring somebody? I think you can teach all of it, um, which you you know, most people probably don't think of it this way. But if you think of, let's say, hard work, for example, right? Um, if you're around a bunch of people who work really hard and it's normalized, all of a sudden you start working harder, right? Uh, leadership is very similar. If you're around people who are great leaders, it just naturally rubs off on you and you realize, um, you know, take the military as an example. I spent six and a half years on the U.S. Army, uh, both in reserve and, and in a deployed uh, capacity. And one of the things they teach you is like leaders eat last. And so guess what happens? If you're like a super type A, you know, hard charging type person, it can become a competition. Like who can get to the chow hall and eat first, right? But then the, the second somebody says, no, if you're a true leader, you eat last. Everyone else eats before you. Then all of a sudden what the competition becomes is among all the leaders is who can get to the back of the line. And so all you had to do is somebody had to tell you this is what you're supposed to do as a leader. And they explained to you why. 
And then all of a sudden you start to emulate it. And so I think hard work is very similar to that. Um, you know, if you're the type of person who shows up to work every single day <clears throat> and you're showing up at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and everyone else is there at seven 30, eventually you're like, yo, I probably should come in earlier. Right. And, and so I do think a lot about, um, there is this like innate self-starter, uh, nature that some people have, and, and maybe you're born with it. Maybe it's kind of your early environment, whatever. Some people do have a natural proclivity to working harder than other people, but I don't think that that necessarily means that if you don't work hard or, or you don't have those kind of good habits, uh, you can't learn them later. And so I think a lot about, uh, kind of environment environmental design, right? If you want to build a team, uh, there's nothing more fun than winning. And if you can build that winning culture, all of a sudden people will start to just do the thing that winners do. And you see this in sports. I mean, you know, there's story after story of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, whatever. They're like, Hey man, you can screw around all you want on these other teams. When you come here, this is the expectation. And guess what happens? People kind of fall in line and they start to emulate those good behaviors. Uh, and then naturally those teams become winners. And so it's a pretty cool thing to be able to do, uh, but you have to be intentional about it or else people just kind of revert back to the default. So, the, you know, I was kind of looking at your life and the one thing you just touched on didn't make sense to me, right? And you just said, okay, I've got this love of business. My friends are in business. My dad, everybody's in business, love business. Wait, I went to the army for six and a half years. Like, so why not just go into business? Why, why the army? Like, what, what led you? What motivated you to go do that? In hindsight, it's much more obvious than I think at the moment. Um, you know, I was in eighth grade when September 11th happened, and uh, I remember them sending us all home and just kind of being like, "What the hell happened?" Uh, obviously, in eighth grade, you're you're too young to uh, to kind of go do anything. Um, but when I got to high school as a senior, uh, I knew I was gonna go play football in college. Um, but for some reason I just had this kind of draw to, uh, to the military. And, and frankly, I think some of it was like, just like egotistical young 17 year old male. Like I can do that shit. You know, I'm going to go, uh, shoot guns, run, you know, prove to myself that I have the physical capabilities to do it. I think some of it was also, uh, I probably didn't want to admit it to myself, but I needed the self-discipline. You know, I was pretty, uh, pretty wild and, and uh, enjoyed the freedoms that I had to, to kind of do what I wanted. And so maybe some self-discipline would be helpful. Uh, but then the third thing was it, it was very clear to me that, hey, I can learn a lot, right? Especially around leadership and, and some of that structure, et cetera. And so uh, when I signed up, um, I kind of tried to hack it, right? I signed a contract that basically let me go to college first and then I would owe, um, you know, uh, full-time full uh, kind of active duty uh, in the uh, U.S. Army. But when I was a junior in college, uh, I wasn't in ROTC. So I was doing reserve uh, duty, you know, once a month at the local uh, kind of unit. And I was playing football, going to school, kind of had a lot on my plate. Didn't have time for ROTC. Well, you're not protected. So I got deployed literally as a junior in college. And, and I joke all the time that I pretty much was like a dumb, naive, young college football player before I got deployed. When I came back, I was like, y'all. There's mortgages after this shit, right? There's kids. There's like, let, let me explain. I like, I like went and saw the real world and I came back. Let me tell you. Um, and so like, literally you can imagine a football team, right? Like all my friends who graduated when I came back. Um, and these guys are like, call me grandpa, I'm a 22 year old kid. Right. And they're like, yeah. that dude's old. And so what it did, uh, I think was it really gave me uh, kind of two things. One was, uh, it gave me a peek into my future, but let me go back and kind of like get prepared. 
Um, and so that was really, really helpful. And it helped me uh, mature and it helped me really kind of, I think, uh, take school more seriously. I was a horrible student before. I was an excellent student afterwards. And so, you know, maturity is this like magic thing that happens, especially in young men, um, that once you get it, you're like, damn, where's that been my whole life? But, uh, but I was fortunate to have it uh, at that moment. And then the second thing is, you know, you're at war. And so before you go, I think a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to war, but like, you kind of don't know what that means. And even in training, it's like, you know, you're shooting like basically fucking imaginary bullets at each other, right? You're just like, cool. I got him. He got me, whatever. When you get there and shit happens, all of a sudden it becomes real. And, uh, there's this like, um, mortality that becomes very obvious. Uh, for me, it happened very quickly, uh, once I was there and it really changed my life in the sense of, I realized like, holy shit, it doesn't matter what color our skin is, what country we're born in, any of this stuff. Like we all end up dying. And once you kind of become aware of that mortality, you realize that you have this finite time. And if you're really lucky, you get to live to, you know, average life expectancy or maybe even longer. Some people have it taken from them earlier. And so like, just go live your life to absolute full, uh, fullest. Now I sit here and I kind of, uh, uh, you know, say this and I'm like, oh, I was mature. I was this, whatever at 22 years old. What that means is like, you go get a motorcycle and you rip down the highway and you're like, I'm living my life, right? <laughs> like I'm Superman. As you get a little bit older, you're like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing that stuff. And I actually should be, uh, you know, trying to squeeze as much juice out of this as I can. Um, and so when you add the maturity plus the mortality, it ends up being this like really interesting mixture. And so in hindsight, the army really not only uh, gave me these life lessons, but then you add in all this leadership training and you're like, man, that was like the perfect training ground for a lot of the stuff in business. It's just really hard for a 17 year old to articulate, especially to their parents have to sign a waiver hey, I'm going to go do this because it's a training ground for business, right? I'm like, no, I really want to do it. Like, please, you know, I promise I'll be safe. I'll, I'll be the mailman. Like, I won't do anything dangerous. And so I think just naturally, um, if we look through history, a lot of business leaders, I think after World War II or Vietnam, I can't remember, uh, it was like 80% of Fortune 500 CEOs were veterans. And oh, so if we sure. look around today, I've been there's after World War II because all, you know, the greatest yeah. generation, those guys went through a lot early. Of course. And so if you look today, like there's a bunch of leaders across the business world who are in the military who never talk about it, right? Or who who, who yeah. you wouldn't even know. It's not necessarily that they don't want to talk about it. It's just like they're 60 years old and people are like, I forgot what you did when you were 18, right? And <laughs> sure. so uh, I don't know. It's just a great training ground, I think. It's kind of a real stoic philosophy, you know, at a young age, because, you know, I'm thinking back when I was 22 and I was just a dumb kid, you know, just graduated college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't have that philosophy at all. I think like most 22 year olds, you you know, you think you're going to live forever and that's just it. Right. You don't really think in the future. What's my impact, you know, on the world going to be or, you know, you know, how am I going to squeeze, you know, quality life into the time I have here? It is a different perspective. I think that that's what set probably set you apart from the other kids your age. So you come back and you do something interesting. You go to Silicon Valley, right? And you get jobs that people would kill for. You know, you go to Facebook, later Snapchat for a little bit, right? But how do you even, because you didn't go to Stanford, you're in the army, which isn't always valued, I don't think, in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, it's like, okay, why didn't you go to Stanford or Harvard Business School, right? Oh, cool, you went to the army, right? So I don't think it it makes you jump to the front of the line. So how do you even get that job? Because I'm sure people watching this or listening to this goes, I want to work at Facebook. I want those jobs that everybody else wants too. And I'm sure that was one of those jobs. How do you even get there? 
Yeah. I wish that I had a master plan and I was like, you know, Hey, here's the playbook, go and do it. Um, I did not, I, this is going to sound horrible for me to admit, but, uh, literally when I first was contacted by the Facebook recruiter in my mind, I was like, Oh, there's people behind this website. Like it hadn't dawned on me that the website I use has like a company and like whatever. So, you know, I definitely was not like, Hey, I want to get to Silicon Valley. I want to get there. Um, I hadn't, uh, maybe when I was very, very young had visited San Francisco one time, I knew nobody out there. Like it was, uh, uh, not something on my radar. Um, what I had done though, was when I was leaving school, um, again, you know, I was supposed to graduate in four years and graduated in like five and a half years because I got deployed. And so I had this like extra level of maturity to me and I started a business. Uh, I frankly made every mistake in the book, uh, then started a second business again, made a ton of mistakes, but was able to be successful enough with those businesses where I knew just enough and can kind of just enough position myself to be interesting to a company like Facebook. Now, I don't even know if I've ever told this story before, but I got on the plane. They're like, you know, we'll fly you out here. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to work at Facebook, but like, if you're going to fly me to San Francisco, like I might as well go and, and check this place out. And so when I flew out there, uh, right before I got on the plane, I had bought a book called the art of product management. It's like this famous book all about product managers. The way I found it was I Googled how to be a product manager because that's the role I was going to interview for. And so on the plane right there, I read, uh, the art of product management. And then I got into the interview and I basically did my absolute best to regurgitate everything I'd learned from the book back to the people who were interviewing me. Right now, uh, it worked great. Um, but I think that was like kind of my approach to life was like, well, like, how hard could it be to be a product manager? Now it was much harder than maybe I had given it credit for before I did the job. Right. But what I, I just was like, I can learn it. And so it was very much the same thing in the military. It was very much the same thing kind of when I came back into school, it's just like, I can learn this stuff. And so, you know, I had to read a book. Now you could just like go on the internet and figure this shit out, watch a YouTube video in 20 minutes probably and learn everything that I learned. And so once I started doing that, I got kind of inside the belly of the beast. I think I had two major learnings. One was, oh my God, these people are incredible. You know, the joke is that it's like every single week they send out these emails and they're like, oh, you know, uh, everyone meet Tom and Mary. We hired them. Tom's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. He has a nonprofit that saved 500,000 lives. And in his free time, he's also, you know, a professional Ironman racer. Like, dude, where the fuck did we find Tom, right? And like, and Mary over here, you know, Mary has sold three companies for $500 million each. And, and you're just like, dude, where are they finding these people? Like, they're all incredible. And so just being around high quality, high performing people, you obviously, some of it rubs off on you, but also you realize like, man, the secret of these businesses is that they just get a ton of smart people in a room and they're like, let's go figure this out. And they go and they figure it out. The second thing is uh, there is very much lessons learned that can be applied across businesses. And so uh, there's testing frameworks, there's leadership styles, there's management of meetings and like all these little tactical things that you can pick up. And I don't know if I would have learned, actually, I'm almost confident that I would not have learned it if I went and got an MBA or went to one of these kind of schools. You have to learn it from the practitioners, right? You have to be in the room and you have to see them actually do it to learn it. Um, and so in some weird way, rather than go get an MBA where I would have had to pay to actually get that education, I got the education that was more valuable and they paid me. It was like the, you know, the greatest thing ever. And so I always suggest to people in early in your career Sure. Maybe you're the next Mark Zuckerberg. Maybe you're the next, you know, whoever who's going to go start a business. The average age of people who build successful companies is 42 years old. 
it really helps to have experience. That doesn't mean you shouldn't start a company when you're young. If you really think you got a good idea and you've got some way to do it, great. But for most people, the best path is probably go work somewhere among a lot of really talented, uh, kind of high quality people, pick up the best skills from them, learn some stuff, and then go try to start a company later. Um, and so, you know, that's basically what I really did in, in terms of building any level of success. And so uh, it worked for me. You know, I'm sure it'll work for some other people as well. You know, I've heard you say that before, too, that the average age of the successful founder, whatever, is 42. I'm 45 now. And, you know, my perspective has changed and I completely agree. I think a lot of people, when they, you know, ask me for advice in this world that I'm in, you know, whatever I can, my, my advice always is life is long. It's not short. It's, it seems short when you're 22. And all your friends are getting jobs or, you know, you're 24 and everybody's got a house, but you don't have a house. You, you know what I mean? Like all those things, comparing yourself to your peers, you know, Johnny just got the new job at Facebook and I'm stuck at this boring corporation and blah, blah, blah. I need to, but actually, you know, when I kind of look back, life is long, right? Like you said, you know, if you live an average life expectancy, you're going to live a pretty long time, you know, so you don't have to have it all figured out at 22 or 24 or 26. To me, I think it's more about just making the next right move. You know, like whatever that is, like you don't have to figure out where you're going to be in 50 years. Who the fuck knows where you're going to be in 50 years? But you could probably figure out like what the right thing to do today or tomorrow is. I don't even know if you have to like really plan that far ahead. I know that a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Right. And I always laugh that um, if you ever meet like a 22 year old who's graduating college, like, I'm going to go be in uh, uh, investment banking for three years. And then after that, I'm going to go do this and then this. And then I'm going to run for this pol political seat. And like, like, dude, no, you're fucking not. Right. Like, <laughs> let me explain to you how life works. Right. You're going to go take that investment banking job. You're going to get some cash in your pocket. You're going to go to a bar. You're going to meet a man or a woman who you're going to fall in love with. Next thing you know, you're like, fuck this investment banking job i'm moving to the suburbs i'm gonna have a kid i'm gonna do that like your whole life is going to change in so many different ways so sure maybe you know kind of as a goal or a, a north star of where you want to go but having a super rigid plan actually can be really harmful i think in terms of not allowing you to take the opportunities that come up as they come up um and, and so this really got hammered home to me. I was 17 years old when I joined the army and I remember being in basic training and uh, the drill sergeants are not supposed to be your friend, but uh, there was one guy um, who he took a liking to me and there was one other kid because he basically, uh, we were kind of like his prized possession. At any point he would call out to us and we'd come running like, yeah, you know, yes, sir. And he'd be like, drop down and start doing pushups and stop when I tell you. And we would just keep going and we were, you know, 17 year old kids that were athletic. And so we could do a lot of pushups. And so he would basically like walk away, come back. We'd still be doing pushups. He'd show off to all the other drill sergeants. So just like we made him look good. So therefore he liked us. And one day he kind of put his guard down and he was, uh, we said something to him like, hey, you know, how long have you been doing this? And he was like, I've been doing it for 12 years. I'm gonna do it till I retire. I remember being like, dude, till you retire? Like I'm 17. I can't do this shit till I'm 62. And he was yeah. like, no, in the army, you retire after 20 years. He's like, if you stay in the army till you retire, you'll be 37. And I remember thinking like, crazy. Dude, 20 years sounds like a really long time, but 37 doesn't sound that old. And so it was the first time where I started to understand like, oh, 20 years of compounding or 20 years working at something it is a lot of time. But also in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't have to be that much time, right? Like it's not like you get done and you're like, I can't have another career or something. And so it's this very weird dynamic of like, can you be long-term patient, but short-term urgent? And so that means like we wake up every day and you're like, I'm going to absolutely do whatever it takes to get the things done I need to get done today. 
but I also have the discipline to be patient over the long run and understand that all of these day-to-day actions that I'm doing are going to compound, and then I'm going to get the result I want over that long term, but it's tied directly to daily action. And that's hard for young people to do. As you get older, I think it becomes a little bit easier. But once you kind of crack that, it's game on from there. It's funny. It reminded me, the number one question I, I get by far is how do you get great guests on your show? Right? And it's exactly what you said. It's discipline going, I need a guest next week. So, I, you know, Paris Hilton's not, I'm not going to get her in a week, right? So I need somebody less than that to get next week who will come on. But I also want Paris. So I've got to put in the work follow up with the PR person that didn't get back to me two weeks ago and send an email. And also, so I need somebody next week, but I also want somebody big six months from now. So it's kind of having that dual focus, just like you said, it's like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z today. In 10 years, I really want to be here. That's, that's hard. And I think it just takes experience. I don't know of how you get there. Um, Everyone always talks about compounding of capital, right? And they're like, oh, I want to okay. compound capital. And, and especially in the investing world, that you know, it's, it's not a rocket science. Everyone knows compounding works. Um, but then they'll literally go and they'll disrupt compounding of effort. And so if you <laughs> believe in compounding of money, then what the fuck are you doing with your time and effort, right? Like compound your effort as well. And what I find is that the people I'm most impressed with are the people who have been doing something for a very, very long time and then just start to have success. And so, you know, NVIDIA right now is all over the news. Everyone's talking about it's a trillion dollar company, whatever. But they didn't start that shit five years ago. They've been doing this for decades. And now everyone's like, oh, they're the, you know, they're the company. Okay, well, would you have the discipline to do this for 30 years, right? If you look at LVMH, another one, if you look at, you know, uh, Apple, like these companies have been around for decades and they've just been doing the right things over and over and over and over again. And then eventually we turn and we look we're like, wow, that's amazing. Amazon, same exact thing. There was a decade where people thought that guy was a moron. Now all of a sudden he's riding around on the you know largest <laughs> yacht in the world. And, and it's just like, what happened? Like he did the same thing every single day, day in, day out, made great decisions for 30 years and he compounded capital and he compounded effort. And now we all look and we think he's a genius. Every so, single person watching can do the same thing. So, okay, so let's apply this to the person watching or listening, right? Who say they're, maybe they're a content creator and they've been posting for six months and no one's watching their shit, nobody cares. Or they started an online t-shirt business and three months they've sold two t-shirts. And how do they keep going despite not having the immediate success? You know, how do they push on? What advice do you have for them? I think that there's uh, two conversations that people have to have with themselves, right? Uh, if you've been doing content on the internet for six months and nothing is changing, like I'm not talking about like, hey, you know, I did a hundred views last month. Now this month I did a thousand, but I really want to be doing a million, but I'm only doing a thousand. Uh, and now I'm doing 5,000. Like, so it's progress, but it's just not as fast progress. That's a different conversation. But if you've literally been doing the same thing for six months and no one's paying attention, it probably sucks. And that's just a really hard conversation, right? That doesn't mean you suck. I've created a ton of content. We've tried a bunch of different things. And there's times where I'm like, wait a minute, we've been doing this for months. It's not working. It's because the content isn't interesting. People don't care. It's not entertaining. It's not informative. It's not whatever. Let's do something different. Let's iterate on it and try to get it to that point. And so when you think about that, that is a very different conversation than just like, oh, let me stick with it for two years. And then like eventually people will show up. So that's one thing is just like, you got to ask yourself after six months of doing something, is it that I just have to keep my head down or do I need to change something about the content? 
changing does not mean that you're giving up. It doesn't mean you're quitting. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that you're still going to keep doing your podcast or writing or whatever. You're just going to do it in a different way that hopefully will then break through the noise and capture people's attention. So that's one. The second thing is that you got to take your ego and you got to put that shit somewhere that you can't see and you got to work. I can't tell you how many people I know who have started podcasts, they put it out there and they just sit back and they just twiddle their thumbs and they're like, let's go. It's the greatest fucking podcast ever. Why is no one listening? Right? Compared to, I have friends who have started podcasts who I literally have to tell them, stop texting me your podcast every time you launch an episode. Right? Stop DMing me. Stop asking me to retweet you. Stop doing all this shit. And the reason why that's so fascinating to me is because guess what? Whether it's good or not, I know that's going to grow because they are working. And so maybe that's not your style or, or kind of your uh, uh, perspective of the world. And you've got to learn that skill. You've got to acquire. How do I market my own stuff? Right? How do I go and get people interested in this? Um, but what I do know that is that that person's probability of success is drastically higher than the person who publishes and just chills. And so in some weird way, you know, this creator economy has uh, gotten uh, uh, invented and everyone's talking about it, whatever. But I just tell all these uh, usually young kids who, who come and talk to me about this stuff. I'm like, you're not a creator. Shut up. You are an entrepreneur. And until <laughs> yes. you realize that, you are not going to be successful. The reason being a creator thinks that they're supposed to create and chill. But an entrepreneur knows you got to build a product. You got to market the product and then you got to serve customers. And if you think about it in that way, all of a sudden now go back to this idea of content. The creation process is just the first step. You got to go market this shit and then you got to engage with people. You got to service them. You got to treat them like you're a customer. And so this is the fun and easy part. Creating this right now. What we're doing right now is the fun, easy part. The work happens after you stop recording. I got four brothers, right? The five of us grew up. You can imagine the conversations we have. Like, dude, we could make money just bullshitting with each other, talking into a microphone. Are you fucking kidding me? Right? I I always remind uh, people who have a bunch of complaints. I tell them, if you're watching this right now, you're probably in the 1% of the world. Like, think about that for a second. If you're watching this right now, you probably are in the 1% of the world in terms of wealth. People think 1% in the United States, you got to have millions and millions of dollars, all this stuff, right? There's 8 billion people in the world. You got to make like fucking $15,000 a year. You're the top 1% of the global population. Shut up and get to work, right? You are so fortunate. Half of the world doesn't have the internet. You got the internet. So you're in the top 50% just to start right there, right? Now, being born in the United States, having a capitalistic, uh, democratic system, right? Having the ability to compete in the free market, all this, like we are so amazingly fortunate that we forget how often, you know, or how advantageous that is. But on top of that, if you found your way to watching this stuff, you've got to know something or you've got to have some desire within yourself to go learn about business. This is not getting force fed to you on cable networks, right? Where you just kind of, oh, I have this cable TV. I just turn on the channel and they program my mind, right? You probably went and you're looking for business type content or or whatever. And so when you start to kind of add up all these things, like you are so fortunate. You have so many opportunities. You have such an advantage in the world that you have to look and see people who didn't have those opportunities and have had great success and say to yourself, well, if they can do it, 
I got to be able to do it. And, you know, one of the best stories, I think, um, my wife uh, did a whole interview with uh, Francis Ngannou, uh, who's the UFC champion. Now, I don't oh, know yeah. if he's allowed to say that or whatever, uh, but but uh, he's the champion in my mind. Uh, Francis, no one mess with him. But he basically uh, went and he tried to get to Spain. And he was leaving uh, the African continent and he got on a raft. Six times, six times they stopped him in the water and they took him back, sometimes even dropping him off in the middle of the desert, etc. And on the seventh time he made it. But when he made it to Spain, they put him in a jail cell and he was smiling. And the way he tells the story is he goes, because I knew I was in. I, I knew that they had to give, they had to let me stay in Spain. Right. And so you look at that and you're like, dude, if you're born in the United States, we are so soft. We are so soft. Right. Like I was born and everyone spoke English, my native language. Right. Like I was born in the United States where there was rule of law and like all these things. And so it's like, look, that doesn't mean that uh, you're guaranteed success. But it does mean that we got a hell of an opportunity. And I think part of what gets me so excited every day is like there is a bifurcation happening in society, right? And people want to put the bifurcation in politics or this or that. or what, Like I put all that shit aside. There are competitors and there are complainers. That is what society ultimately is boiling down to now. And if you're on the side of complaining, you are not going to be successful. And we need to just have a conversation and be blunt and say complainers never win. You're told that from the youngest age. But if you compete, if you're willing to get up every single day and go compete, you got an opportunity. You got a shot to do it. And I think that's ultimately what you're seeing in this business world now is that there are a bunch of people who are saying, wait a minute, I could actually use the internet to compete in whatever market and actually have an opportunity to build some sort of financial freedom or security or whatever. That's incredible. And I think that we just sometimes forget like what, a, a fortunate position we've been put in. And then it's almost like, okay, now if you're in that position, you have a responsibility to go capitalize on it. Cause like, if, if you don't, you're just an asshole. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, that's like my big thing now is just like, stop complaining, go compete. And if you do that, you got a shot. And my guess is that most people are smart enough that they'll be able to figure out how to actually build some sort of thing of value as long as they have that mindset. And I think, too, to tack on to that, too, is you have to take advantage to the opportunities when they pop up and you never know when they're going to pop up. But some opportunity will pop up eventually in your life. And you look at your career, right? So you, you get out, you know, you do Facebook. You're like, hey, I'm going to get in investing and me and my buddy are going to have this fund. And you're raising $50,000 checks and $100,000 checks from rich lawyers and doctors and stuff. And then you said, hey, to be to run a fund. You know, to be a real investor, people need to know who you are, what you're about, what your beliefs, what your core values are, all these things. So I got to let people know that, right? And what's, what I'm going to go create content. And your goal wasn't in the beginning to be pump the guy we all follow on Twitter or the newsletter that I see in my inbox every day. That wasn't the goal in the beginning at all, right? But as things kind of kept rolling, you you, you saw this could be something and you kept doing it and doing it and, and changing. And when things weren't working, kind of fixed it and righted the course. And I think you're a good example of that, that, you know, unexpected things may happen in your career and your life and you got to jump on them when you see them, right? Is that kind of what happened with you with having this fund and kind of ending up where you're at now? 
most people in my experience, they chase, they constantly are chasing things in life. So fundraising as an example, uh, what a lot of people would do, especially around the time that we raised that very first fund, uh, my buddy, Jason and I, they would go to people and they would say, Hey, you're rich. Give me some money. I will then go find some deals and invest it. And then I'll take a portion of the profits. And every single rich person said you and the 20 other people who walked in this door all tell me how great investors you are, right? You're chasing me as the rich person. And so the fund manager would chase. Instead, what we did is we created a magnet. And what we did is we'd go find the deal first. And then we'd come to the rich person and say, hey, look at this amazing deal that we have. We want to invest in it. We'll let you invest in the deal. But when you give us the money for this specific deal, you're going to get this one plus all the other ones that are already in the fund. And so now all of a sudden, we weren't chasing them. We were giving them an opportunity. We had a magnet. Content is the same thing on the internet. You could go beat down the door of people all day long trying to get a meeting. If you create great content on the internet, they'll find you. And they'll ask you for a meeting. And so that's what I realized early on was every tweet was a magnet. Everyone thought about it. I'm pushing content. I'm getting this in front of people. All I kept thinking is like, if I go and I tweet this stuff, that is a magnet for a certain type of person to come back to me. And what they'll do is they'll follow me. They'll, they'll DM me. They'll, they'll message me, et cetera. Newsletter, same thing. I'm putting a magnet out every single day. Podcast, I'm putting a magnet out, et cetera. I've been around the world. I've met some of the most amazing people in the world, all because I created this content. But 95% of them, it was inbound. And so what you end up learning is that the internet has this amazing ability to connect people, but actually the best connections in my experience, right? Maybe not for everyone, but for, in my experience, has been by putting magnets out in the world, not by chasing people. Because we've all been chased. And guess what? We're humans. Biologically, if somebody's chasing you, you run. You're like, get me away from this person. Stop yeah. emailing me 9,000 times about your bullshit thing that you're doing, right? Yep. But I DM someone almost every single day and I'm like, hey, I like what you're doing. Can you tell me more about A, B, C, whatever? And I'm like, damn, they got me, right? The magnet got me. And mm -hmm. so if you can create magnets rather than chase people, I tend to think that that ends up being much more valuable. And so we learned that in fundraising, but then the content really became like a magnet on steroids in order to kind of uh, track the right type of people for various things that we were doing. Now, you also had a great quote too, where you said, audience is the new currency, right? Now, how does that, I mean, okay, I understand that, right? But, you know, the person who's watching this who has a hardware store in Ohio, right? Or they're a B2B, you know, kind of business, you know, unsexy business. Why do they need an audience and why is that important to them? If you sell janitorial supplies... <laughs> You don't, okay. you don't want to be famous, right? You don't want to walk to the mall and all of a sudden get mobbed by TV cameras. <laughs> but you sure as hell want every single janitor in your region to know who the hell you are, to like you, and to want to buy from you, yeah. right? Sure. That's janitorial supplies. Okay. If you're an accountant, again, you don't want to get mobbed when you go to the mall and be super famous and get you know kind of the celebrity treatment. But you want every business owner in your local geography to know who you are and like mm -hmm. you and want to do business with you. Now extrapolate that out to the internet, right? Is if you do a thing, you want everyone who buys that thing to know who you are, to like you and want to do business with you. And so ultimately that's what content does is it allows you to build these relationships at scale and it allows people to get to know you without you having to spend time doing one-on-one -on -one calls or physically going to their office, et cetera. 
And so what becomes fascinating about this is that um, as you're doing it, you will eventually get to the point where you'll get on phone calls. This happens to me literally multiple times a day. And people will know all this shit about me. And all I know is their name. And, and it's weird at first, right? Because they're like, hey, man, I've been listening to the podcast for five years. I'm like, oh, my God. Do you know how many stupid stories I've told about myself on this podcast? Do you know how many mistakes I've admitted to on this podcast? Like, all this stuff, right? And they're like, no, man, I love it. Like, I know, I know you. I know, like, the good things, the bad things. I've seen the ups, the downs, like, all this shit. But, like, I like it. And so you're like, okay. That's really powerful to build relationships at scale via the content, but not necessarily try to be ultra famous. There are some people who are definitely on the internet and they want to be the celebrity. I don't know in the business world how many people actually want that. Like it's kind of uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And so if you don't want to be celebrity famous, but you just want to be well-known among the people in your industry, the internet is an amazing thing to do because guess what? There's a lot of competition to become the celebrity famous. There's not that many people who are trying to become famous among the janitors in a certain region, <laughs> right? Or become famous with the local business owners as an accountant. Like the competition is way less. And so you can use these tools to do it in a really, really interesting way. And then it leads into like, okay, well, people are like, you know, how do you make money doing all this stuff? Sure, you can have ads and, and whatever, but at the end of the day, I personally think the single best way to make money is to have a business on the back end that then you use the relationship you've built, right, to actually monetize, whether it's through a product, a service, you know, whatever. And I think people are kind of waking up to that. And we obviously see, you know, huge, huge people doing it. But I think you're going to see, you know, the local accountant is literally going to become like a micro influencer for accounting in, you know, Columbus, Ohio. And next thing you know, they're going to show up to like the local accounting meeting and people are literally going to be like, can I take a picture with you? And they're going to walk outside and someone's going to be like, dude, get away from her. Like, who are you? Your breath smell, right? And yeah. So I think that's what business people want. So you're creating content, right? So you kind of got like a parallel track going. So you're, you know, chug, chug, chugging along and you're, you know, you're doing Twitter. Now we're going to go to, you know, podcasts and newsletter and all that. Now what's going on at the same time with your fun? You know, how, what's the ROI on your content? Because even if you don't, even if it doesn't cost you dollars, right. It, it, you know, costs, it's your time, which is worth money, right. Of, Hey, what am I going to talk about on this podcast? Or what am I going to write about in this newsletter? Or, oh shit, I don't have, I'm going on vacation. So I got to spend, you know, hours having newsletters to, to be able to post in the next week and all that stuff. So what's, what's the return on that? Is it, is the goal to get more investors into the fund? Is, is that, was that the early payoff? You know, what was the end game at the, at the time? No, I, I've always been, um, I think, maybe a little unique in that uh, I, I realized early on there was two paths I could choose. One was like be a professional content creator and then go and, and try to figure out how to make a business, right? And, and if you do that, then you've got planning meetings, you write scripts, like, like you do all the things, right? And you want the highest quality content ever. And I said to myself, that sounds amazing for some people. That's not the life I want. And so instead, I've always looked at it from, I run businesses and I make investments. The content is a piece of that. It's an important piece, but it's a piece of that. And so when I make the content, if I'm not going to put 10 hours a day into making content and super scripted and like all this stuff, then there's only one other way to do it, which is super authentic documentation. And so what I do on that front is when I write every morning, I'm just writing about the things I read something somewhere and I want to go do some research on it. And so 
my excuse for getting an hour of research in is, oh, and I'll also write down what I learned and then send it to people. And so therefore, like, it was work, right? The yeah. podcast, like, I just interview people who are going to teach me things. Oh, and by the way, I'll publish it too so that other people can listen and like, thank you so much for coming in, right? But like, I've been able to intertwine things that I want to do anyways for business or personal reasons and then simply just kind of document. So either record it, write it, whatever, and then publish and, you know, I was talking to somebody today and he was like, so how many people edit the newsletter every morning before you send it out? I go, dude, I write it sometimes. I don't even read it a second time. I just publish. Yeah. Right. But that's my promise to the audience is like, listen, if you want something that's like meticulously edited, then I can write one a week. I can get five people to edit it, like whatever. If you want it every day, I may spell a word wrong every now and then. I got, you know, a thing that checks. If it tells me I did, everything was right, I tricked the computer. I'm a genius. Sorry, the word spelled wrong. Like we're going to move on, right? Yeah. And so I do think a lot about um, kind of the, the expectation setting then allows for people to do certain things. So, you know, if you're writing a book, the expectation is no spelling errors. Of course. If you're writing a daily newsletter, right? You can get away with doing it, especially if you tell people like, hey, I'm stupid. I spell words wrong sometimes, right? And like grammar yeah. may be horrible, but like the ideas will be there. <laughs> and so I think it's just like trying to be as authentic as possible. And people, you know, they appreciate and they understand what you're doing. You know, you are you were so smart about the newsletter too. And it's it's kind of become, it's kind of come full circle, circle and it's sexy again. And I mean, I fucked up, you know, I should have spent more time on it. And didn't really grow it. And I really see the value. I was thinking about the other day. I'm looking at, you know, kind of analytics like any content creator does, right? I'm going, hey, you know, TikTok's doing really well for me, you know, way above any other platform. And then Montana bans TikTok, right? And this is the importance that we're going to get to it. The ports of a fucking newsletter, right? You go, okay, TikTok goes away tomorrow. I'm in California. California bans everything, right? It's a tough state to do business in. Maybe they ban TikTok tomorrow. Fuck, Right. I got a, an email list of only a thousand people. I should have been nurturing that and having lead magnets doing all the things I'm supposed to do, but I didn't. Now I see, well, if I had a list of 10,000 ride or dies who are going to read every newsletter, listen to every podcast, you know, are interested in whatever the fuck I'm doing, I'd rather have that than a hundred thousand TikTok followers. So obviously I'm sure you believe the same thing, right? Stress the importance of that. And, and why is a pop newsletter subscriber more valuable to you than a, than a follower on Twitter? Yeah, I, I think that it is, um, each platform has pros and cons and you got to understand what each one of them does. So if you just think of it from like a marketing standpoint, a company looks okay. at uh, their marketing budget and they say, all right, we're going to spend X percent on brand awareness. We're going to spend X percent on direct response. And so I think of, you know, again, this is my view of it. Uh, some people may think of it differently, but something like TikTok to me is like all about brand awareness, right? Uh, if you go on TikTok and you scroll through, like you may see somebody's face a couple times and you're like, who is this person? It's all about like, like awareness, right? Who, who is the person? Yeah. I don't know very many people who are going on TikTok and they're like, oh, let me go click on this link, go and buy this thing. And, you know, and, and it's like direct response type stuff. So maybe some people, but that's not the majority of folks. We had a celebration in, in uh, my house recently because I bought something off Instagram for the first time. And my wife was like, oh, <laughs> holy shit. Like we're all changing, right? Uh, but, but if you think well, about- it? Uh, sweatshirt is dope sweatshirt. Um, <laughs> they got me, they had like a, a three pack for like a hundred bucks and it was like a huge discount. Like, ah, you guys, you guys got me. I'll give, you, I'll give you my credit card. 
Um, and I wear it sometimes on the podcast. Not everyone's always like, where'd you get that sweatshirt? And I'm like, man, if these guys only knew, I literally bought it off Instagram. Um, but uh, if you think of obviously a newsletter, it's like much more direct response, et cetera. But also the, the content type can be limiting or it can be uh, um, empowering. So for example, it is much easier for me to come on here. You and I spend an hour together. We talk about all this stuff, right? And then we're done. And it's just like, yeah. you can just publish it. And yeah, sure, maybe do some edits around the edges or whatever, but you just publish our conversation as two people talking. Mm -hmm. When I sit to write the newsletter, you can't just like, Oh, let me just write whatever I'm thinking at the moment. Well, you got to think for a second, right? Okay, what is the structure of this? What context do they need beforehand? What there's no uh, tone inflection, so you got to really explain things. Like it's a different way to to uh, kind of uh, convey ideas. And so, if you look at each of the platforms, I almost think about them as like different plays, right? If you're like a football coach, you got a playbook, and you're like, oh, on fourth and one, I'm not running a hail mary, right? I'm sure. actually just going to run the QB sneak. And so, okay, same thing. If I want a piece of content to do a certain thing, where should I post it? What content type should it be in? How should I actually create that thing to accomplish the goal of the content? Now, I say that and everyone's like, oh my God, like how do you guys come up with all these plans? I'm like, no, dude, this is like intuition. Like you just kind of know, right? You've been doing it long enough and you're like, hey, if I'm going to talk to someone, like I'm going to do a podcast. Why are so many people still interviewing folks on podcasts and not doing Twitter spaces? Because it's a change, Right. And then you say to someone like, why don't you do both? And a lot of people are just like, I don't know, man. I just like record the podcast, mm -hmm. right? Like we've been doing this yeah. for a while. I'm like kind of, I'm a creature of habit, right? But if you think about it, you're like, okay, hold on a second. Actually, maybe the smartest people, they realize a new platform is doing something and they go and they run to it and they don't give up what they were doing. It's just additive. And so you start to get in this like strategy game. And so you got to be careful because you can get really into the weeds, right? I mean, I know people who are like, they have a full-time thumbnail editor. Oh, for I'm sure. Like, I'm like, listen, I get it. Like, if that's your business, yeah, like yeah. you better have someone who writes the titles, right? You better have someone who does the description, like somebody in the comments responding. Like, I get it. Yeah. For me, there was a period of time where I was making the shit on Canva and I was picking the photos based on what I thought looked cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like, that was when I was doing it. And so, like, yeah, now we have a team and they do stuff and like they're much more intelligent about it and they're much more skilled or whatever. But like, you just kind of got to know, like, what am I trying to accomplish here? And for me, it was all about the conversation, less about the rapper. If it's your business, though, if that's like your thing, the rapper is almost more important in some cases than the substance, right? Because if people don't actually click, they're never going to see the substance. A hundred percent. And so I do think that, you know, going back to this like newsletter thing, the newsletter is amazing for me to write, you know, kind of in-depth thoughts. It is horrible to do, uh, if I just like emailed you a video, like, dude, stop this. Like you're wasting my time. I'll just get it on Instagram or TikTok or wherever, right? Yeah. And, and so if you said to me, you can give up all the platforms, you got to keep one. My brain tells me, keep the email. Mm -hmm. My heart would tell me to keep Twitter. Because I, you know, fucking Twitter's fun, right? But yeah. from a business perspective, definitely the email list, I think is probably more valuable. The email or podcast. Podcast is also very valuable. Um, cause you're kind of like whispering in people's ear for an hour at a time. Um, and there's kind of this like emotional connection, but I'd say those two are, are definitely much more important than like the true social media platforms. You know, and I, you, the rapper just triggered something that you said, and I love, I love your analogy. You said you take like a late nineties, 2000 hip hop mixtape approach to content. Now for younger people out there who don't remember what a mixtape is, explain what that means. 
So, uh, you know, Jay-Z and a bunch of these uh, folks, they wanted record deals. Like that was, that was the thing, right? That was like the equivalent of like getting selected in an NBA draft, right? Somebody came and said, hey, you're good at this. We'll give you some money and come make, come make music and we'll help uh, push it. But if you didn't get the record deal or in 50 Cent's case, he got a record deal and got shot in the face and they basically dropped him because they want to be associated with the violence, um, you had to figure out how to market it. And so what you would do, uh, there was a thing called a CD. Uh, I feel so old right now. Um, and so you burn the CD, right? Which basically you put the music onto the CD and they would go out in the street and they would hand out CDs. Sometimes they would sell them for Yeah, sometimes yeah. They'd, they'd sell them for some small amount, but usually they would just try to give them out for free and get people excited. And so 50 Cent actually is probably one of the better ones where he took over New York with his mixtape strategy. He was just handing them out, handing them out. And next thing you know, like he had bangers that were like the summer song. And people were like, yo, this dude 50 is hot. Then he got the record deal. Then it, And then it started to snowball, right? Because then people were like, oh, shit. He basically went and tested his ideas in the free market where people could listen to anything they want. And they keep listening to this dude's song. He must be good, right? That people must like this. Imagine if we actually put it through the machine of the record deals, et cetera. And that's he then exploded. And so I, I think a lot about the same thing with content is like in today's day and age, you can stay independent 100%. But can you stay independent and have the same level of success? It comes down to the effort. It comes down to the mixtape strategy. It comes down to all these things. It is possible, right? If you think most podcasts get, Joe Rogan is independent. Yeah, he did yeah. the Spotify deal, whatever. But he, he was independent for, you know, whatever, 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss, like you just go through it. Lex Friedman, Andrew Huberman, all, they're all independents. Yes, they have teams. Yes, they have help, like whatever. But like at the end of the day, it's not like, oh, Let's go put you through this big distribution thing. We're going to spend millions of dollars to promote your podcast. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Podcasts went in the free market. And so it ultimately comes down to like who can create great content, who can actually go ahead and market it, and then who can service those customers. It's just a business. Product, marketing, customer service, you do those three things and you can build a business. Now, we talked a lot about content. I want to talk finance, right? Because that's your thing, right? I got finance questions. We all do. And some of the, I just, you know, I'm not a huge fan finance guy, right? I believe in some principles and have done okay in life, right? But I'm, you know, not rich or, you know, not a big investor or anything. But I heard these stats, you know, and we're talking about, you know, the debt crisis and all this stuff. But these were staggering to me and blew me away. Maybe I'm just in a different world, right? That the credit card debt, it's 986 billion. So you're at a trillion dollars, right? Balances are up 20% year over year. And I didn't know this until I makes sense, right? But if you're listening to this, I never thought about this either, right? But I guess earlier, you know, early in the year, quarters one, two, people pay down their balances. So they're less because they run them up for Christmas, they pay them off the first half year. Okay, makes sense. But it's bad that it's so it, it's up 20% year over year. That's not a good thing, right? And this one, I, the average credit card balance is $5,700, which it's a lot of money to me. It's a lot of money to the person listening or watching this right now. What inspiration do you have? Where are people going wrong? And what, Pomp, save us, right? Save us from this debt crisis. What are people getting wrong and how do they correct it? So 50% of Americans have no investments. They have 100% of their wealth in cash. They, they've never made an investment. They don't hold an investment, et cetera. 60% of people who make over $100,000 a year report living paycheck to paycheck. Jeez. Almost 80% of Americans in some studies report living paycheck to paycheck regardless of income. Credit card debt's at an all-time high. 
on that credit card debt, the interest rate is near all time highs because interest rates are all going up. So you have to pay more on your monthly payments on higher uh, balance. On top of that, we have what I consider a financial education crisis in America, which is the schools refuse to teach people things that actually are going to be end up uh, valuable to them. So it means what is the what is the difference? We do not have a wealth inequality gap in America in the sense that people think there's not some like evil room of billionaires who are like, ha, 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 ha. we're going to like screw them all. Right. Actually, what you find is like most rich people, they would love for other people to win. And they actually spend a bunch of time and money trying to teach them things. Right. They start schools. They donate. They like do all these different things that they're they would love to tell everyone else what to do. Some of it's in an egotistical vain way. Is like, oh, look how rich I am. I'll tell you how I did it type stuff. Of course. But some of it is actually like, hey, they want to help people. Now, why do I say it's an education gap? The rich people know one thing that other people don't. Invest. Wow. Your entire life you are told to save. It's because your grandparents and probably your, your parents, uh, they that's what they did. If they built financial security, most of them saved. You could save your way to uh, some degree of financial security. You can't do that anymore. Inflation is too high, and so you have to become an investor. Now, to be an investor does not mean go buy Dogecoin with 100% of your portfolio, right? It does not mean that I only buy the stock if I think it's going to go up 10x, as one of my brothers told me his friends were saying in the middle of 2021, right? <laughs> Instead, what it means is you can follow timeless investing principles. You can go dollar cost average into the S&P 500 and do it for 30 years, and you'll probably end up actually retiring as a millionaire. Yep. There's a study done by Dave Ramsey, who uh, is really into like get out of debt, right? That's like his big thing. He went and he surveyed all these different occupations. Of the top five occupations that become millionaires, one of them is teachers. Hmm. The average salary in America for a teacher is like $45,000. How the hell do $45,000 a year salaried teachers become millionaires? What ends up happening is that everyone makes a million dollars in your lifetime. If you work for 20 years, you're likely to make a million dollars, right? It's mm -hmm. can you keep the million dollars, right? How do you do that? And so what teachers are really, really good at doing is they live within their means. There are almost zero teachers in America who drive to school in a Lamborghini, right? Yeah. Because it's just part of, maybe it's a uh, part of their, their uh, psychology, part of their attitude, part of going to school, like whatever it is, teachers end up living within their means. And so if you start teaching at 22 and you finish teaching at 62, that's 40 years, which means that if you made 50 grand or so, that you likely ended up coming in with a couple million dollars of total income of top line. You probably, if you're a good investor of just dollar cost averaging into good assets and not making stupid decisions, you can retire with two or three million bucks. It's like, okay, well, if a teacher can do it yeah, and you're out here making a hundred grand, which is double what they can make, right? On average, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, like, Stop trying to fly in a blade helicopter to the Hamptons where you're staying in a holiday inn with a buddy, right? But going to the bar and then going to drop a couple thousand dollars. Like just live within your means. And depending on your income level, depending on your level of success, that's different for everybody. But yeah. if you just one simple thing, like you got a shot and that's all anyone can ask for. Pop, I'm going to quote you, right? You had a great tweet the other day. Everybody follow Pop on Twitter. He's, he's one of my favorite people to follow. But you're right. I, I read one financial book my whole life, right? I read a Dave, Dave Ramsey book. And 
It's just basic shit, right? You don't even need to read that book. You break it all down in a tweet, right? What rich people don't want you to know. One, you won't get rich off salary alone. Two, inflation steals your wealth, so invest. Three, buy assets, not liabilities. Four, never spend more than you make. Five, pay yourself first always. And six, compound interest works wonders. If people would just listen to those six points, they'd be in great shape. So my question to you, Pomp, is, okay, maybe it's not an education thing, right? You just laid it out right there. So tell me why the person who just heard this or watched this won't listen to the, the that simple advice. Because the doctor tells, doctor tells me not to eat ice cream and I tell him, fuck you, this shit tastes good. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I mean, think about it, right? It's like, yeah, I got money in my bank account. I know I'm not supposed to spend it because uh, I'm supposed to live within my means, but guess what? Yeah. Like, I'm going to the club tonight. Like, shit's fun. Right. Like we're still human. Like we still, we, sure. we know all the right things to do. Right. Yep. When you're a kid and you're 14 and you know that you're not supposed to punch your brother, but you're like, damn, he took my toy. Right. Or he took my video game or whatever. Like you punch him. And so, yes, I think it's just this constant uh, chase. Like all we want to do is we want to get better every single day. And yes, if you make a mistake, that's okay. Get back on track and just keep going. Um, but it is unrealistic for us to believe that no one's going to eat ice cream, that no one's going to spend money on things that they shouldn't do, whatever. Sure. I think a big piece of this is just like, don't make catastrophic mistakes, right? Like okay. it, it's kind of, I and mean, this is like a ridiculous example, but uh, it's one thing to eat an extra bowl of ice cream every week. It's another thing to go take like heroin, <laughs> right? Like yeah. neither one are good for your health, but sure. there's very different levels of kind of the Risk. impact two things yes yeah. and so like okay maybe i shouldn't do either but if i'm gonna make a mistake like let's make the ice cream mistake not the heroin mistake <laughs> right sure. same thing yeah. in finance right is okay if i'm gonna make a mistake maybe it's because i get a coffee at starbucks every day but not oh i went and bought a lamborghini and i can't afford it right and so yeah. like just make small mistakes and be okay understanding that like you're not perfect that's cool but just keep trying to get back on track, get great skills or uh, uh, follow kind of these timeless investing principles uh, and savings principles and do it for a long time and you'll be fine. So, okay. So we got our debt paid off. Boom. Checkbox one. Now we got, we saved and we got our six month fund together, right? Emergency fund. Now what do we do? Okay. I, I, I'm not a savvy investor, right? The person watching, listen, this doesn't know all these, you know, investing you know, secrets that you've learned over your whole career. What are some basic things we can do? Where do we put our money now? We got a couple grand. What do we do? I think the first thing that people should do is they should take the money and they should literally put it in the bank. And then what they should do is they should go and get some sort of uh, education. And people are always like, wait a minute, you just told everyone to go invest, but like then you told them to go understand what they're going to do. And I always say that um, the reason why I say that they should invest first in a book or uh, something like that is let's say you have $1,000. Okay. People will always kind of debate this, but if your $1,000 compounds at a really high rate and now you have $2,000, let's say three years later, that's an amazing financial return. Yeah. You made $1,000. That is not going to change a lot of people's lives, especially when it takes over a couple of years for that to happen. Right. Sure. And so what ends up happening is like, there's probably five books, three books, whatever that you could read that will completely change your mindset. And like, that's worth the investment. So like, once you get past all of that type of stuff, right, then you look and you say, okay, what should I do? I always say you should do something that is sustainable. 
What you should not do is you should go and buy uh, an asset that's going to go up and down at a gazillion percent every single day and have 100% of your uh, net worth in it, right? Instead, what I think most people should end up doing is say to themselves, I don't know anything about this, so I'm going to keep it really simple. I'm going to go buy a stock index like S&P 500, just dollar cost average in, buy it, never touch it. Just let it do its thing. Don't even look at it. I tend to think that they should put one to 3% of uh, their portfolio into something like Bitcoin. It's super asymmetric. If it doesn't work, you're going to lose one to 3%. You're going to be mad at yourself, but it's not the end of the world. Again, small ice cream mistake, not heroin mistake. But because it is so asymmetric that if it works and it goes up, 10% and you put 3% of your net worth into it, well, you made 30%, right? That type of stuff. Uh, or I'm sorry, 10X, uh, then you made a, a pretty big return. And then what I think that you, people should do is they basically should stop thinking about investing once they've done one or two of those things and literally go figure out how to make more money. Because if you have $1,000, right? If you go and you try to invest and turn your 1,000 into 2,000, you made 1,000 bucks. You this weekend could go make $1,000 doing something. And so like actually most people who end up kind of starting investing, they don't think about it from the perspective of it's all about aggregate dollar increase. And sometimes you can't do that just through investing. Sometimes actually the faster path to make an extra thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars is go get a, a, a side job or create a, a, a kind of a side project or, you know, go do something this weekend or whatever for a couple of weeks that will drive you the extra five or ten thousand dollars. Then try to turn your thousand dollars into ten thousand dollars. And so it's like this weird thing of maybe investing isn't just about where to put your money. Sometimes mm. it's also where to put your time and energy, right? And then just measure success on aggregate dollars. Forget all the percentage shit. You're not a hedge fund, right? You don't have LPs to get to report to. All you need to think about is how much money did I start the year with? How much money did I end the year with? And if you're starting with $100, you can end this year with $1,000 but it is much more likely that you're going to go make $1,000 than it is that you're going to go buy some stock that's going to go up 10X. Because if you did, you'd be working at a hedge fund, right? And so yeah. instead, just think about aggregate dollar accumulation and think to yourself, what can I do to go from 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000, 2,000 to 4,000, 4,000 to 8,000? And a lot of times early on, it's all about go make more money rather than try to become some you know, amazing investor. Now, we're almost out of time, and I got a couple of things. One, just one more thing on the investing slash wealth thing. I heard you quote um, somebody, Kawasaki maybe, and it was it really made me think. You said or you quoted them saying you can be an employee, self-employed, or a small business owner or an investor. Being an investor or hands-off business owner is where you build wealth. Most people think they're a business owner, but they're actually self-employed. You just got yourself a job. You have to create the content, get the brand deals, et cetera. So talk about that, right? So why is you want to be an owner or investor, right? You don't want to be necessarily self-employed. So why is that the move? So Robert Kiyosaki uh, wrote Rich Dad, okay. Poor Dad, um, you know, fa fantastic person, always been incredibly kind to me um, and, uh, you know, frankly, taught me a lot before I ever even knew him uh, through these books. And uh, he created something that he called the cash flow quadrant. And so basically, if you think of uh, top left is uh, an employee, bottom left is self-employed, top right is a uh, business owner, bottom right is investor. And his whole thing is most people live on the left side. You got to get to the right side. Left side, employee, self-explanatory. Self-employed, think a doctor or a lawyer. If you're a doctor, you got to see the patient or you don't get paid, yep. right? If you're a lawyer, you got to go into court or you don't get paid, 
right? You got to touch every patient. You got to go see every case, right? You're like, you're involved. You got yourself a job. Now you may make a lot of money as self-employed, but if you go on vacation for a year, business don't work, right? Yep. You, you got you to service the clients. A business owner is someone who owns the business, but doesn't run the business. And so when you start thinking about that, Warren Buffett, he owns a big chunk of Coca-Cola. He ain't making decisions at Coca-Cola. He owns he, the business. And he makes more than the CEO of Coca-Cola too, which is worth noting. Correct. Correct. And so now all of a sudden that's a business owner, right? Or an investor, same thing, right? He allocates capital, et cetera. So you want to end up getting on the right side because what you end up doing is you're gaining leverage. You're gaining leverage of individuals, right? In terms of employees and, and operations, you're gaining leverage in terms of capital. So on the left side, you're still doing a lot of the work. And yes, you can get a big portion of the uh, uh, kind of reward, but it is very much a exchange of time for money. On the right side, now what you're doing is you're exchanging either decision-making or capital in exchange for a portion of the profits. And that is obviously much more higher leverage, lower stress. And that's why he says you should try to get to the right side of it. Gotcha. Hey, I want to finish up with some personal tips, enough of the finance and the content creation. What's your morning routine? What do you do every day? Um, I wake up, uh, around six o'clock, a few minutes early. Sometimes, um, I work out. I then, uh, try to be in the office, uh, get my daughter ready and everything. Uh, you know, seven fifteen, seven thirty. gets to the office around eight o'clock. Um, I write until about nine and then pretty much from nine to four o'clock. Uh, I do uh, meetings back to back, no breaks, um, which is brutal and uh, fun at the same time. And then uh, I have a hard rule that uh, I leave the office at four o'clock. I, I got to leave the office at four o'clock because I know uh, if I stay in the office uh, past four o'clock, then uh, I will literally stay there all night. One. And two is uh, I've always had this mentality that um, whether people agree with it or not, if they see me in the office, they'll stay in the office. And I don't want people basically sitting there twiddling their thumbs being like, I can't wait till five o'clock or five 30 or six, you know, whatever. Right. It's like, look, we live in a world where I can do just as much work from home as I can do in the office. So I leave at four o'clock. Um, I usually go home, uh, I eat and then, uh, I start working again. And so my day is probably like eight to eight, eight to nine, something like that. Um, but around eight, eight 30, I will shut down, uh, any work, email, et cetera. Uh, and then I'll read and I'll read usually for an hour, maybe hour and a half before, uh, before I go to sleep every night, uh, and wake up and do it again the next day. I love that too. I'm a huge reader. What are some books, um, that we should check out some books that made a lasting impression on you kind of over your life? The three books that changed my life, I read when I was 20 years old. Uh, I was in the middle of Iraq, bored out of my mind uh, at the time. And um, I read them in succession. Uh, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, I read uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. And I read uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And those three books uh, didn't teach me shit, I think, in terms of like tactical stuff. But it completely changed my mind in terms of the way I thought about money, business, uh, career, etc., um, and so I, for young people, those are three great books to go read. Um, in terms of business type books, uh, I think that Good Profit by Charles Koch is probably one of the best uh, business books that someone can uh, read. Um, in finance books, there's a book called The Price of Time uh, by Edward Chancellor. Uh, I think it's fantastic and, and kind of nuanced, but, but great. Um, and then uh, I think that other really solid um, books to read. I like all the Ryan Holiday books and uh, Robert Greene books. One, one of the best books, actually, maybe I'll leave you this one. Robert Greene wrote a book with 50 Cent. Uh, and everyone's yeah, like, wait, that. what? Like yeah. All this stuff? And, the Laws uh, of Power or something? The 50th Law, yeah. It's all about yeah, yeah, overcoming. 
um, which is uh, which is great. And then um, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, what is my favorite book, but I'm cheating because I've read it. And no one else has read it. My wife wrote a book called Hidden Genius. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm cheating because I talk to her about this stuff all the time, right? So, so we've talked about a bunch of these different ideas, but she sat down and, and wrote them all into a book. And it's basically after having studied hundreds, if not thousands of uh, kind of the most successful people, success not necessarily just in monetary terms, but just they're at the top of their game at whatever they do. Uh, she noticed a bunch of commonalities. And so she basically is able to pull those out and put them into the book. And so an example would be uh, a lot of successful people have alter egos. So Kobe Mamba, right? Black Mamba. And so what did he do? He like turned it on, right? When he walked on that court, he wasn't Kobe anymore, et cetera. If you look at David Goggins, right? He's like, no, I didn't run those miles. Goggins ran those miles but David's here talking to you. And so they have this kind of alter ego across sports and business where they feel like they're actually doing their thing all of a sudden. Now they get the alter ego. It's a way for them to separate it from them. Uh, Beyonce has another one. I think she calls herself uh, Sasha fierce or something. Yeah. When she gets on stage. She's not Beyonce anymore. And so there's a bunch of these like commonalities across all these successful people that she's able to pull out and put into a book. And if you read it, it's not like you're going to all of a sudden go and venture alter ego, but you will understand, I think a little bit more about kind of what makes these people tick. And hopefully you can apply some of that to your life as well. When's the book come out? Uh, June. So uh, oh. probably when this comes out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, what are some habits that help make you successful? So she's reading, writing about you in the book. What, what would you yeah. write? Um, reading and sleeping? I think those are the two biggest things I read a ton. Uh, and I think I've learned, I, I just, you know, it compounds, right? You're just compounding learning at a faster rate than everyone else and they can't catch you anymore. Um, and then sleeping. Um, I used to sleep like five hours a night. I, uh, when I first met my wife, she would like be like, why are you texting me at three o'clock in the morning? I'm like, wolves don't sleep. Right. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know where I got that from. I just, just say that all the time. She's like, you're a fucking idiot. Um, and so now I sleep like eight hours religiously and completely changed my life. So reading and sleeping are probably the two things. Two more questions. What are the best industries to get wealthy in in 2023? Any industry. Man, you can make money doing anything in the world. It's fucking crazy. I've met people who make money doing all kinds of crazy, insane things. I had a guy come into my office one time and he sat down. He goes, yo, Pomp, I've cornered the dirt and gravel market for the U.S. government. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay. He basically, one out of every two government contracts that come out for dirt or gravel for the U.S. government, he wins. Wow. started he was inspired after he watched war dogs and saw them doing government contracting of gun running and so he's like i wonder what other things they got on this website like you can make money doing anything in this world and so i don't think there's one single industry that you can actually go and build wealth i think it's literally just if you understand how business works you can go do it in any single industry and finally if you could go back and talk to your 18 year old self what advice would you give him do all the dumb shit now man just like just do <laughs> do even more like i I know that, you know, now I've got like this, like great view of life compared to then whatever, but like, man, was that shit fun? Like just, <laughs> just fucking enjoy it. Right. Cause you know, at some point you get to, uh, you get in life and you're like, you know what? I can't go do the double all nighter and drink, you know, 10 Red Bulls and like fuck around. Like, just like, I just can't do it anymore. And so, uh, uh, yeah, you want to be prepared for life. You want to do all that stuff. But like, man, when you're young, just enjoy the shit. You'll figure it all out as you go. Bro, that's a great note to end on. Bro, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. We followed you, I followed you on Twitter for years, so it was nice to finally connect with you and talk with you. Everyone go check out the Pomp Podcast. He's on YouTube. He's on 
all podcast platforms. And you know what? I'm going to plug my newsletter. I got the newsletter too, Pomp. So every week I share tips from some of the most successful people in the world on how to elevate your life. So check it out. Link in the description below. Link to all um, uh, Pomp's social media platforms, all his accounts, his podcast, YouTube channel, all that is down there below. So thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure.